you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, March 9th. 2022. This is episode number 232. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 27,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert co- correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that's intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about a CEO raises thousands for war relief, safe banking, cannabis consumption lounges, what happens to Alaska with federal legalization, Mike Z, Long Beach cashing in on equity program, an Oklahoma update, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up on the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, director of operations at LB Atlantis, and an important advocate for the plant. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. Nicole, what's your headline today? Well, good morning, everybody. Happy hump day. Uh, My headline today actually comes out of my hometown of Long Beach. Um, The article was written by the Press-Telegram by Pierce Sinning, um, and the article is about social equity and where Long Beach has accepted $3 million of a state grant for cannabis social equity programs. Um, Now, I want to start by saying last week I did take the social equity employer course uh, here in Long Beach. Long Beach is taking a, a pretty active approach to ensuring that there is at least 40% staff members within the companies here in the city that are uh, through the social equity program, so within an employment enrichment program, which I think is really cool. Uh, So I did have to take a class, and with the class I have to go through, and I'm certified as somebody that understands how to go through and submit my hours, 
And every year, at least 40% of my working hours for the non-exempt employees, because there are some exemptions to this uh, this requirement, uh, but for the non-exempt employees, at least 40% or more of our hours must be by social equity candidates. And now the social equity candidates within the city of Long Beach uh, live in a disproportionately affected zip code and have either um, below a certain uh, percentage of income uh, or the have been incarcerated or have received criminal charges uh, for cannabis. So there's an active program on that, which is pretty cool. And then I do want to say also the city is working towards being able to have a type S license, which is a social equity or not a social equity. It's a shared space license. And the city wanted to offer that specifically to social equity candidates. And so the shared space license would allow for somebody to get a license that essentially didn't have an address and it just stacked on top of an existing license license that did have an address. So um, that's just a little bit about the social equity program. And now let me read the article. Long Beach City Council members agreed to accept state funds for its cannabis social equity program, which would be used to expand the direct grants, fee waivers, and direct technical assistance programs available to equity applicants. City Council members voted in their meeting on Tuesday, March 8th to accept $3,235,203. Interesting fucking number. From the California Governor's Office, Business and Economic Development. I'm looking forward for ways that we can make sure sure to move this program forward, says Councilwoman Shirley So in this meeting. Long Beach's cannabis social program was created in 2018 to ensure those who have been historically targeted for cannabis-related crimes have an opportunity to cash in on the low, the now legal industry. Emily Armstrong, the city's cannabis program manager, said that the city council meeting will use 80% of the state funds would go towards direct grants for equity applicants, and 20% would go towards administrative and technical issues. A couple of them would be website and just technical issues in general. Uh, Grant funds would also be used to support equity applicants throughout the licensing process. If the city adopts the policies to expand equity business ownership, all grant funds must be spent within one year of the date of the funds were given. So they have one year to spend three million bucks, which shouldn't be hard. It's a government. Um, Any unused funds within one year must be returned to the state. This is the third round of the city social equity program, which has received the state funding from the Office of Business and Economic Development. Last year, the city received $1.2 million so I'm really hopeful that this actually helps expand it. I hope that this gets the Type S license moving faster because we were told that it was going to happen last year. I believe October was the day that we were supposed to have licensing available for that. I have not seen that happen yet, and I do believe that the LBCA is working and there's some other groups working with the city right now to try to figure out what that looks like. I know there's some conflicting uh, points of interest, and I'm curious to see how it all shakes out. I'm also curious to see what everybody in the audience has to say about this. But Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis news. And Nicole, um, on a personal level, do you really think that $3 million is going to help as much as uh, some people might think it will? Um, I mean, $3 million is not, you know, nothing to turn your nose up at. When they were giving us $100,000, that was a little annoying. But, um, you know, I if you look at 80% of $3 million and they actually issue it as, as monies to, because that's when one of the pushes was to get access to capital and the city might actually be giving access to capital. If that does happen, I mean, it, it, you know, the city of Long Beach is like a big little city. And as it stands right now, you know, I think there's at least a 
you know, 50 or 100 businesses that could uh, gain from this uh, as far as opportunities concerned. But when we actually look at what's available to, you know, come in further, I I hope that it gets issued and is used for, you know, the different types of cultivation or manufacturing that is still available to come into the city. But it's like we're, we're from at least the way the city looks at it, pretty tapped on retail and then, you know, maybe the delivery model as well. Uh, if that gets some more traction and opportunity. But I'd say as it stands, if the people that are currently involved that actually are social equity uh, candidates, I mean, real life in the city of Long Beach and businesses, there's probably only 20. And so if we divvied out 80% of $30 million, or $3 million to 20 people, I mean, fuck, that'd be pretty cool, right? <laughs> Nicole, do we know what uh, banks they're using to move this capital around? I do not. I will say this is that it would have been a lot better if it would have been 4.2 million. It would have been a much better press release. But I will say with the S type license, I'm a big fan of these types of licenses. Um, if you're a manufacturer distribution company, I would high and you have someone else operating in your facility. I would highly recommend that you look into this because if that company leaves for any reason and doesn't pay its taxes, it'll be under your license as opposed to if you have the shared type license, it will be under their social security number. And if you're not really a um, a fan of the Type S license, you might be a fan of the S Type Tesla because it doesn't fucking use gas. That's that Pete Buttigieg transportation program. I'm just curious if it actually, you know, gets used. The, the initial part of the social equity program was really sad when they first rolled it out here. Um, it was, you know, really just giving somewhat of an opportunity for staff members to kind of get um, – you know, the opportunity to get maybe employed. And then there was, you know, the opportunity to get your fees waived. The initial social equity business opportunity here in the city of Long Beach was really sad where it was like, oh, if you're a social equity applicant, you don't have to pay for your fees. And it's like, okay, so like you saved us a couple grand, which is, you know, thank you. But like, what the fuck? Like, that's not actually a leg up. So, you know, the, the movement and the changes that have been happening have been positive. I don't know that we're quite at a place that fully um, makes sense, but yeah, it's definitely something that we have to pay attention to. Sorry, I don't want to be all Pollyanna-ish on it, but I do really hope this moves forward. I remember working with people years ago for these S licenses, and it's like, God, it's about time. So thanks for explaining all of this, Nicole. A real talk. And uh, Nicole, I mean, don't mean to hate, but you know, sometimes when you put your leg up, you get fucked. Especially on hump day. Well, thank you, Rico. Uh, thank you, Nicole, I mean, for that uh, insight that you have. And it's a super important topic. We talk about it a lot, and we need to continue to do so. But uh, we're at time on that. And so up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. He's also also the patriarch of dad jokes on the show and keeps it spicy, especially on hump day. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? My headline's coming out of Benzinger from yesterday. Cannabis education pioneer Michael Zayetsev, a.k.a. Mike Z, will be directing uh, LIM Colleges' new cannabis degree programs. 
Uh, so well-known to New York cannabis event pioneer Michael Zaitsev, a.k.a. Mike Z, made a name for himself as the founder of High NY, the Big Apple's first major industry education and networking group. Launched in 2014, High NY events quickly became popular as the first in the city offering access to top-tier speakers and educators, uh, attendees in and outside of the industry, bridging racial and cultural divides, something others in the market have struggled to do since. Uh, multiple books, TED Talks, TV appearances, and industry awards later, Mike Z is joining Lab- uh, Laboratory Institute of Merchandising, uh, a.k.a. LIM College, as the first ever academic director to their new focused Bachelor of Business Administration, BBA, and Master of Professional Studies, MPS, degree programs. Uh, both recently approved by the New York State Education Department and launching um, in September. Mike Z made headlines last year by teaching his Introduction to the World of Cannabis course at Medgar Evans College in Brooklyn, the first city University of New York school to offer cannabis minor. LIM's college known as uh, one of LIM's college is known as one of the best fashion schools in the world, and applicants are currently being accepted for the inaugural class of first year and transfer students entering fall 2022. Per Benzinga, Zaitsev will oversee the program's recruiting, supervise adjunct facility uh, faculty. Uh, design curriculum and mentor students help establish relationships with companies and organizations in the legal cannabis space to create ongoing experimental, experiential, uh, educational, and career development opportunities for LIM students and alumni. Mike Z is quoted in the article saying, LIM College shifted the paradigm in fashion industry back in 1939 by offering business education to women um, when doing so was uh, practically unheard of. I'm proud to join the institution as it's making history again by launching its first cannabis business degree programs in New York State. We could potentially see over 100,000 new cannabis jobs come to New York and its neighboring states within the next few years alone. And LIM College is bringing cannabis industry experts from all over the country to teach our courses and prepare to uh, prepare the next generation of cannabis workforce for the multitude of career opportunities ahead. Um, LIM's business uh, of cannabis master degree focuses on specific skills sought out by industry employers like marketing, retail management, branding, merchandising, so many more. It'll be 100% online and students will have the opportunity to complete the entire coursework within a single calendar year. LIM's President Elizabeth S. Marcuse said, robust connections uh, to industry professionals are a hallmark of LIM college education and Mike's many years of experience as a leading cannabis community organizer will help ensure that our students receive an education that prepares them to succeed in cannabis careers. Uh, though I've yet to met Mike Z in person, not that I recall at least, um, I've heard nothing but positive things about him from people above and underground in New York. Uh, we sat on the board for Global Hemp Alliance in uh, 2020 and 2021 before I had to step aside when my daughter was born to focus more on my dope dad skill development. Um, it's very interesting to see a school well-known for fashion and merchandising making a big splash in the cannabis before other trade schools, but it does make sense especially to me, because I sell hemp hoodies. Congrats on the the new gig, Mike Z. I'll be looking forward to seeing and hearing about LIM's pioneering programming here on out. This is Rico Lamite, dopest dad on these $6 a gallon gasoline streets, reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan. I thought it was more than six now. I haven't been by a gas station this morning. It was actually more than $6 last night. Costco added like a $5.93. Trash. I mean, five ninety three. Just round up, bro. That's six bucks. All right, let's so not go to gas about right New now. York because I'm sure they've got some good gas prices too. What do you guys think about this? Is this going to be legitimate and actually have some 
credibility or is it kind of just another PR thing of creating a bunch of people and sounding I good? thought it was just a little PR thing uh, first, but it was approved by the State Educational Board of New York as well. I think it's more of like a, like a trade school uh, degree. Um, so uh, not necessarily on, on the level as, um, um, as one of the accredited universities, but um, we'll see. This is great. Really, really great. Hey, Rico, on a side note, um, beer is cheaper than gas, so maybe everyone should just stay home and drink. Is beer cheaper than um, street price weed? Only if it's yeasty. Mm, yeast. Let's go ahead, Nicole. Take it over, Nicole. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Rico. Definitely an interesting topic. Now, next we have Mr. Jason Beck, the longest-running retailer in cannabis history in the U.S., international man of mystery who finds a way to get higher every single day, willing to be the elephant in the smokiest of rooms. Member of the GOP, but we still like him. What do you have for us today, bro? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Nicole. Today, my story comes out of Oklahoma where everything probably is not okay out there, but they probably have a lot cheaper gas than here in fucking California, where Republican lawmakers unveil a medical marijuana regulations. Republicans in Oklahoma House on Monday unveiled a package of new restrictions on the state's booming medical marijuana industry designed to crack down on illegal growers who sell cannabis on the black market. The 12-point plan includes a standardization of lab testing and equipment, more inspections of grow facilities, separate licenses for marijuana wholesalers, and stringent new reporting requirements for electric and water usage by growers. One proposal would also make the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority a standalone agency, not a division of the Oklahoma State Department of Health anymore. In a quote, if you agree on illegal operator, if you are an illegal operator in Oklahoma, your time is up, said Representative Scott Fettiger, an, an Oklahoma Republican and a member of the House Republicans working on a group uh, on this medical cannabis case. The marijuana industry has been booming in Oklahoma since voters in 2018 approved one of the most liberal medical programs in the nation. It's easy for patients to obtain a two-year medical license, and nearly 10% of the state's population is now authorized to buy and use marijuana. Unlike other states, there also are no restrictions on the number of dispensaries or grow licenses. And the low cost for entry into the industry has led to a flood of out-of-state pot entrepreneurs seeking to capitalize on the boom. But the low barriers for entry and the loose regulatory environment has also led to huge increase in the number of illegal operators, according to law enforcement. The Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics last month announced one of the state's largest ever marijuana bus involving more than 200 federal agents, state and local officers, and a dozen grow operations. Agencies, more than 100,000 plants and thousands of pounds of bulk processed marijuana destined for other states, including California, Indiana, Missouri, North Carolina, and Texas. Even medical marijuana industry professionals agree there should be stricter enforcement, said Chip Paul, a marijuana processor who helped write the state question voters approved in 2018. And in a quote, he says, absolutely, I think generally the industry feels like things are too loose and and on the back end, Paul said, 
but we don't necessarily need more regulation. We just need our current regulations to be enforced. Paul, who operates a marijuana processing facility in the Tulsa area, said he's had a license since 2018 and has had his first state inspection last week. Well, I'll tell you what, you guys must not be collecting that much in taxes out there to be funding that department because you get lots of inspections when you're out here in California. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That's super interesting that there's no limit on how many licenses. Oregon did the same thing, and it's how the race to the bottom happened so fast. And eventually had to realize that that was a really bad move. Oklahoma's next. To Oklahoma. Do we have anyone in the audience from Oklahoma? If you are there, please raise your hand. We'd love to hear from you. I got a call from four of my, every one of my Oklahoma clients in the past, I don't know, five days asking if I could come out and do a metric implementation uh, out there. So that's, uh, everyone's kind of scrambling again. It seems like almost like a redo of last year. They know it's coming. It's the ultimate inevitability. And all the little trap stars in Oklahoma are all going to have to go move back home with their parents. Bro, they're so- in California? Uh, there's so much more than trap stars there, though. It's crazy what's what, what's going on over there. Do they wear? Do the trap stars wear cowboy boots out there, Nicole? Some of them, yeah, absolutely. Where are they, they going to go, Jason? They don't have... I mean, they can't come back to California. Texas. What makes, you think they're, what makes you think they're all from California? I didn't say all, There's, but a, a lot, lot of right? them. A lot of them are from Florida. I think I think there are some from California, and not trying to be an asshole, but the ones that were like, California's too hard, so they fucking went to Oklahoma, like took the easy way out. Sorry, exactly. Exactly. Um, I totally agree with you. The people that are in Oklahoma are in states that weren't legal or were states that were coming up that just wasn't happening quick enough. And the opportunity was too, the barrier to entry was too high, like Illinois or something like New York. You know, the barrier to entry was so, so high to get into those markets that they were like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to go to Oklahoma. Um, I'd say a majority of Californians that went there were just like either completely burnt down by the industry as a whole and or just thought it would be easier. I call them minor league trap stars. Boom. But even the Oklahoma market is getting oversaturated now, especially people from The California. Oklahoma market was oversaturated 72 hours after it opened up, Shalina. Like, it was a, a, a mess from the get-go. It just was so wide open, and it was feeding so much of the South that nobody was noticing that it wasn't actually satiating the people that fucking lived there. A third of all medical licenses in the country are issued out of Oklahoma. A third of our citizens don't live anywhere close to that. Nowhere fucking close. And so they just oversaturated it. They were pumping the, 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 you know, product out and nobody was like, Hmm, is every man, woman, and child really smoking three and a half pounds a year in our state? Because that was the equivalent of what was produced. If I was a trap star in uh, Oklahoma, I would definitely wear cowboy boots. Obviously you want to fit in, bro. (laughs) Would you wear a cowboy hat too, Rico, and like some leather leather uh, uh, leather pants with a uh, with a snakeskin? I trap in assless chaps. Uh, fun fact: all chaps are assless. So, um, yeah. What about chap lips, Rico? Oh, my lips. Let's keep smoking <laughs> the news. Stay moist. <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right. So uh, this Florida-based entrepreneurial bouse is leading the charge for ultimate. Cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. She's also the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Coming to the stage next, 
It's Roz McCarthy. What you got for us, Roz? Bouse lady. Good morning. I'm sorry, guys. I had to get myself off of mute. I apologize. So again, I'm coming to you guys from, um, this is coming out of Missouri. The Cannabis Freedom Act aims to decriminalize marijuana in Missouri. Crowds gathered Tuesday morning in the Missouri State Capitol to share their opinion on the decriminalization of marijuana with lawmakers. The Missouri House Public Safety Committee heard public testimony on House Bill 2704, the Cannabis Freedom Act, which would legalize um, which, which, which would legalize marijuana for recreational use in Missouri. Um, the bill sponsored by Representative Ron Hicks is what's called an omnibus bill, meaning it includes pieces of marijuana reform from many different lawmakers. The whole bill is over 70 pages long. Public comment will remain open until online until March 18th. Supporters of the bill are also planning a rally in the Capitol on March 29th. They're calling the Show Me Canna Freedom Rally. Hicks and several others are expected to speak at the rally. Dozens came to testify in favor of the bill, touting hats and T-shirts with marijuana leaves and slogans like Be Wise, Legalize. Their support for the bill was well received by the committee, which gave bipartisan support to the bill. Ashley Bland um, Manlove, Democrat, Kansas City, is a ranking member on the Public Safety Committee and says she's pleasantly surprised by the support the bill has received. It has gotten a surprising amount of bipartisan support, and I'm honestly shocked. Currently, Missouri law only allows medical marijuana sales. The sales tax is set at 4%, and the state brought in $8,141,000 from marijuana sales since it was legalized in 2020. Under HB 2704, tax revenue from marijuana sales would go towards veterans, education, and first responders. Committee members discussed using the revenue, revenue from marijuana sales to help get rid of personal property tax in Missouri. Since we are still in a Republican majority, they have an agenda to get rid of taxation, but get rid of, of some of the more regressive taxes that I do agree with, I, that I do agree we have, and replacing it with revenue from this avenue might be a really good aspect. Brennan England is the state director of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Eng England supports the Cannabis Freedom Act because he wants to see more minority-owned marijuana businesses, and this bill would lessen the barriers of entry into the in, into the industry. The fact that minorities have been left so dramatically out of the legal industry shows how disparaging that racism is in our corporate structures and that there's still so much repair that has to be done. Although it was a smaller group, several people testified in opposition to the bill. Opposition was largely from those in the medical marijuana business who took issues with things omitted from the bill, such as licensing caps and testing requirements. We got Brennan England in the audience, and I don't know if Brennan's on stage or not, but he was there yesterday and literally testified. And I want Brennan and thank you for your hard work to talk to us and share with us a little bit more. Definitely, Roz. Yeah, thanks for pulling me up. Thanks for everybody. Um, yeah, so whenever they say that it, the opposition was largely from those in the medical marijuana business network or medical marijuana business, it was only those. Um, they have rights to want to protect uh, the initiative that they're putting in place uh, because the Legal Missouri 22 is the initiative um, that is in opposition to this state uh, piece of state legislation. Legal Missouri 22 is primarily and almost only backed um, by the existing uh, medical marijuana license holders. Um, this obviously would blow it wide open. Um, it's nice that this came right after the conversation with o about Oklahoma, uh, because that was actually the only valid argument that I heard from the opposition. Other than that, the arguments really uh, were mostly a lot of uh, uh, performance art more than puncturing arguments. 
Um, it was obvious that the opposition was there solely to protect the millions that they've invested in uh, to control the market. Um, our market is really bottlenecked here. They've got cannabis that's dying on the shelves because our medical marijuana program has a gap between the access to medicine and the amount that's being cultivated. Um, we only have we have a handful of cultivators in the state that have, that uh, that control that. Uh, the bill has a lot of good uh, as far as the House bill is concerned, but it still needs a lot of work. I submitted four, a list of four amendments uh, that expand on the expungement language, including uh, expungement resources for, for, and business support uh, for those, ex, those expungees, and clear sound equity provisions. Um, I also mentioned that the only reason that the legislation is getting this type, or excuse me, that the state initiative is getting this type of traction is that the legislature is dragging its feet. Um, I hosted a debate back in February uh, between uh, debate or between competing ballot initiatives, and they made it clear that the only reason that they needed to hold this in their hands and put anchor-driven amendments to our state constitution that are hard to change was that the state legislature wouldn't move on this issue. Uh, we had dramatic bipartisan support, as it was mentioned in this. Uh, Ashley Manlove, that's mentioned here, is also not only a member of the the, uh, the excuse me a, a member of the House, but she's also the chairwoman for, for the Missouri Black Caucus. Um, this bill is supported by the Missouri Black Caucus, also members of Missouri Sheriff's Union. So um, yes, there is a lot of concern that was brought up from the opposition. Oklahoma came up a lot, mostly about the, uh, the risk that this bill uh, that could bring about the horror of, of uh, Oklahoma cannabis problems, just like Jason was talking about. Specifically, one thing that wasn't mentioned was the reference to uh, Chinese shell companies and gang infiltration of the, of, uh, the Oklahoma market um, and how it's become um, uh, that itself has become one of the most toxic pieces of how the Oklahoma market is driven. It's an omnibus bill. Um, it's obviously going to be a shoot for the stars and land on the moon type thing, uh, but it has enough in there, including provisions for social consumption, which benefits me because I'm a private, a private consumption lounge owner, um, that I definitely was an affirmation of this. Um, I ended my day at the Capitol uh, by uh, recording a video of myself uh, roasting a blunt in front of the Capitol, and I was listening to Cat Stevens' skit uh, about the government being pimps. I'm going to just. And I'm, and I'm done. Uh, so I'll, I'll just like to say thank you, Brennan. And I know that was a little long, but I that if the state of Missouri looks at this, um, there is some similarities to Oklahoma where it'll be open access. If you are able to meet the requirements for a permit, you get a permit. And it's an open market, and I'm, I support it. I would love to see some tax revenue that goes towards um, equity and communities that disproportionately been impacted. But that's it. Just a small correction there. It's Cat Williams, not Cat Stevens. Oh, I said Cat Stevens. Where am I at? <laughs> you knew what Oklahoma. I meant. You knew what I meant, motherfucker. <laughs> All right. Well, we have reached the 30-minute mark, so we are going to relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. High luxury equity brand. Local. Authentic. 
Lifestyle Cannabis. Canna Express is a select equity brand enhancing highs for everyday patient and recreational user. Smoke with class and experience high luxury cannabis. Canna Express, available at your local Catalyst dispensaries. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Let's keep smoking the news. And up next, we have Miss Liz Rogan. She's a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison. Somebody who always seems to be doing some sort of extreme sport and science at the same time. Liz, what do you have for us today? My story today comes from Alaska's news source out of Anchorage, Alaska. The headline reads, State of Marijuana. Concerns grow that if marijuana becomes federally legal, Alaska's industry could be hurt. So, um, sorry, forgive me while I pin this link here. Um, So Alaska has a history of being pro-cannabis. In 1975, the Alaska Supreme Court ruled that the state's constitutional right to privacy protected the right to possess, cultivate, and consume small amounts of cannabis in the home. And Alaska was the third state to fully legalize cannabis in February of 2015. Seven years later, Alaska's industry is thriving, bringing in tax revenue, providing local products and jobs, despite a lot of competition in this space. So the article itself is focused on the cannabis industry in Alaska since legalization. And it says that it highlights a handful of concerns, like who benefits from the taxes, outside threats, the growing concerns about the number of retail shops, and the fairness of prison time and convictions from legal versus illegal cannabis. So there have been many complaints on the tax structure, where shops could be located, the number of licenses issued, and the consumer's habit of buying cannabis with the highest concentration of THC over the quality of the plant. Lacey Wilcox, who's the president of the Alaska Marijuana Industry Association, says there is a need for an education campaign that would teach consumers about what makes a good quality product over the impacts of THC. The high THC buying trend hurts local growers and means that good quality marijuana is left on the cutting room floor, end quote. Market saturation is a serious concern in Alaska because there are no limits on licenses, and with federal legalization, the requirement to be locally owned would be lost, which would allow for operators from other states and countries that can afford to operate at a loss much longer to come in and driving out local ownership and losing tax revenue for the state. Alaska does have more retail shops per capita than any of the other western states with recreational sales. Wholesalers are concerned about taxes in this oversaturated market. Taxes are currently collected at the cultivation level at $50 an ounce or $800 a pound. These funds are supposed to be divided between the state's general fund, programs to reduce reticism, as well as drug treatment and marijuana educational programs. In 2020 alone, more than $24 million was collected in taxes, according to the Alcohol and Marijuana Control Office, and almost every year after, the revenue has increased. Taxes collected went from $10.8 million in fiscal year 2018 to $24.2 million in fiscal year 2020. Lacey Wilcox, who's the president of the um, – oh, I'm sorry about that um, – So essentially, there's a lot of problems in Alaska here. They are trying to vertically integrate to protect themselves, as we've seen in every other industry. But basically, they are having a hard time. The industry insiders are concerned. They're oversaturated. They're saying it's not a fun market. You know, we're struggling. We're working together and hoping that um, we can protect our local economy. 
So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Sorry for getting this link up a second or two late, but I would love to hear what you guys have to say because I think these are some high taxes. And what do you have to say, Alaska? Alaska's got the worst industry <laughs> in the U.S. of all the ones that claim to be legal. They can't even be growing weed that's worth $800 a pound in most places in Alaska. Like, what the fuck? But Alaska did give us Charlo Green. Yeah, thanks a lot, Alaska. (laughs) 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 We've got Amber Plaster up from the audience. Amber, did you want to weigh in on this headline? Uh, Yeah, thanks. I I actually just wanted to know, for those of you in legal... um, is there a way that Alaska can vote to keep those sort of sales in the state? Is that a stupid question? Because it it sounds like that's what they should do is just vote to keep it, um, like you said, keep the, the med men out or whatever their worry is, because there's not a lot of people that live there. So as long as they keep it in the state, it should be, it should even out, right? Are you saying more like the dormant commerce clause? Like... Um, like how they're saying that they're afraid that when it, get, when it becomes... Uh, federal that um, that there's as many licenses as you want so basically people can come in from other areas of the world and and make business there and like okay well then just isn't don't other states protect against that can't you take action against that I feel like what state like or what companies are going to try to fight for fucking Alaska like it's hard to get a fucking set Eleven in Alaska, like Seven Eleven doesn't even want to be there. So, like, why would MedMen or some large company fight for that? Like, it's not like there's a ton of market. I think that's right, Nicole. I think what's right for the people of Alaska is just like any other consumer good. They should have access to it. If for whatever reasons their cannabis bureau wants to tax incoming products to the state, then they should. But the actual consumers in Alaska want to have the same products we get here in the lower 50 states or lower 48, if you will. And they should have access to those quality products. Not every great product or great great strain is going to grow in Alaska. Well, maybe Canada wants to get in on some of that baked Alaska. I mean, I think they're one of the only people that's close that it would actually make sense to transport it there. I believe a single tear just fell from the right eye of Sarah Palin. All right, we're at the the time for that story. Up next. Uh, Sarah Palin was hilarious. Up next, she's a staunch supporter of Safe Bank and a feisty, redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots, never afraid to spar with her cannabis-loving libs, liberal peers across the aisle. Coming to the stage next is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us this morning, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline is on my favorite topic, Safe Banking. Uh, For marijuana moment, Congressman pledges to be a real pest until Senate passes his marijuana banking bill. Representative Ed Perlmutter says that he intends to continue to put significant pressure on his Senate colleagues to advance a bill protecting banks that work with state legal marijuana businesses as he prepares for retirement from Congress. Speaking at an event hosted by the American Bankers Association yesterday, the sponsor of the Safe Banking Act was pressed on the measure's prospects after it cleared the House six times now in some form without any action in the Senate under either Republican or Democratic control. He said, I will continue to be a real pest and persistent in getting this done. Uh, He told, Perlmutter told this to ABA Executive Vice President for Congressional Relations and Political Affairs, James Ballantine, stressing the public safety concerns that have emerged like robberies, 
of state legal marijuana retailers who are currently forced to operate on a largely cash-only basis. It's not just your run-of-the-mill robberies that the cash-intensive industry faces. He referenced instances where police have allegedly targeted armored cars filled with cash from medical dispensaries and seized the dollars, which seem to have a little bit of help by the federal government, FBI in one instance and DEA in another, even though it was all perfectly legal at the time. Uh, The congressman took the ABA official through the timeline of the Safe Banking Act and how the notion of such cannabis reform was first laughed off by his colleagues years ago. But as the issue gained momentum, he's faced different obstacles. With the GOP in control of the Senate last session, key lawmakers blocked hearings because they felt it was too broad. With Democrats now in control, they tell him it's too narrow. Following the bipartisan House passage of the banking bill, Perlmutter said he naively expected it to, quote, sail through the Senate, which is always a bad assumption because nothing sails through the Senate. But he's taken pains to build support, including from current Senate leadership, that has insisted on enacting comprehensive legalization with firm equity provisions in place before advancing a bill viewed as friendly to the industry. Despite recently saying that he's confident that the Senate will take up his bill this session, the congressman recognized that while he's supportive of revisions related to criminal justice reform, taxation, research, and other issues, he knows that as we expand the thing, then we will start losing votes, particularly Republican votes, and we got enough votes in the Senate to do it as is. Perlmutter also brought up the fact that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has addressed the federal-state marijuana banking conflict, and she wants to get this off her plate and get it done. But President Joe Biden and his administration have been a little bit leery and cautious on the subject. While the president campaigned on modest cannabis reforms such as expungements and rescheduling, promises that have yet to go unfulfilled, he's not specifically weighed in on the banking issues. Uh, But with respect to being able to normalize, in effect, banking relationships for the dispensary, for the grower, for the shop and owner, for the accountant, for the lawyer who represents the marijuana businesses or the related businesses or the bank, I think we're in good shape on that. Ahead of the ABA event, the financial group released a poll that it commissioned showing that a strong majority of Americans support freeing up banks to work with marijuana businesses without facing federal penalties. Meanwhile, the number of banks that report working with marijuana businesses ticked up again near the end of 2021, according to recently uh, released federal data. It's not clear if the increase is related to congressional moves to pass a bipartisan cannabis reform bill, but the figures from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network signal that financial institutions continue to feel more comfortable servicing businesses in state legal markets. Uh, I applaud uh, Representative Pearl Mutter. There are very few Democrats that I ever applaud. Uh, but I like him sticking with it and trying to get safe banking passed. Chuck Schumer needs to get out of the way and just allow this to go through um, and let amendments be brought on the damn bill if he wants to see things change. So, scratch him. Stay to Cam Sneeze Hour. Pass hmm. safe banking. <laughs> exactly. Pass safe banking. I just put that shit on loop. <laughs> uh, yes. Scheduler bust. Perlmutter has been very vocal. That's how you got to be when you want to get a bill passed. Well, and Perlmutter has nothing to lose, frankly. He's retiring, so what are they going to do to him? So he doesn't care. Uh, He can go down in a blaze of glory trying to get safe banking passed. A literal blaze of Um, glory. Maybe he'll... We've got... got Sorry, we've got Kate Crowther uh, Crowther up from the audience. Kate, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, a couple questions. Uh, Something that I haven't considered is... So it's sort of a two-parter. One, you know, living in Massachusetts, 
I've been contacted by clients. I'm a consultant. Often I'm working with people who don't have a license yet. They don't have local approvals yet. And we're on our way to that. And in the process of getting a bank account, especially if they are a social equity or economic empowerment applicant, they have experienced something that uh, uniquely qualifies them for this designation by the CCC. And that designation and that experience often disqualifies them from banking with an institution, even if an institution is open to doing business with cannabis companies. But the states still take in those fees, the application fees, the taxes that come from these businesses and things like that. So I am, I hadn't considered it. Where are the states keeping their money and how are they able to do this with ease when there are people within the state, my own deposits have been withheld um, or held for an extended yeah. period of time. We, we've asked that question. Bank of America. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, Bank of America will fire you as a client if you have cannabis clients. Okay. I hadn't considered that. So thank you for that answer. States and government bodies are immune. Uh, immunity. Fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for that headline and that bit of information. Gretchen, up next, we have Guy Ricourt. He is the co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley and the 2022 advisory board member for the Cannabis Conference. What do you have for us today, Guy? Hey, good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Susan, Rico, team. Uh, yeah, happy hump day. My article is coming from the Cannabis Business Times, and it reads, Cannabis with a Conscious, new delivery service connects Sacramento and Butte County consumers to sustainable Mendocino farmers. The MCA, which stands for the Mendo Cannabis Alliance, the premier cannabis trade association in Mendocino County, committed to providing guidance and solutions for small legacy cultivators and operators who currently face a multi-front crisis in the state-regulated market. With wholesale prices plummeting and far too retail storefronts statewide, cannabis farmers and operators need relief now, said Michael Katz, MCA Executive Director. We are proud to create a win-win that empowers our cannabis farmers while providing consumers with high-quality, affordable cannabis from small family-owned uh, small family-owned businesses that align with our values. The program includes 20 Mendocino-based farmers, crafts, people, and Mendocino makers who were selected from submissions to, of MCA members. And then the article goes on to list of participants. I think you guys should definitely check that out. Um, this is a great program. Uh, uh, candidly, I had a similar idea. Now I'm really bullish on it for our folks here in Humboldt, the Humboldt Growers Alliance. Basically what this does is it allows small farmers who don't really have enough to, let's say, create a brand or compete in the brand knife fight that is California to get their great quality products to consumers and share in some of that margin, right? So instead of just getting treated like a commodity provider and getting rolled over or aggregated by bigger players because they can't survive year over year, now they can get their their products to market and share in that margin at the register. So kudos to the MCA for doing this. I hope I can provide a similar service for our folks here in Humboldt. Uh, you know, through our apparatus, our distribution apparatus, I think this is a great thing for farmers. But what I think it is great for the consumer is when you have farmers that have the ability to really grow passionately and bring it directly to you and also be able to feed their families at the same time, that's when I think we'll start to see these longer flowering strains that I've been desperate to see. Like, I don't want to have to grow my own 90-day UK cheese. I, like everybody else, just want to go to the market and buy flowers, right? I have a lot, of, I have a day job and I want to be able to go and get quality flowers 
dispensaries in our dispensaries. That's what we were promised. Right now, we all know we are not getting quality flowers because farmers are not incentivized to grow quality flowers to get all the way through our compliance system, all the way to dispensaries. This is now the beginning of folks saying, hey, we can now bring the farm to table right to the California consumer. So I think it's great for the farmers and great for the consumers ultimately. Those are my thoughts. This is Guy Roadcourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Support your small farmer. That's how we can save the California cannabis industry. Real talk, man. Support, support, support. Always dropping gems, Guy. Thank you. For yeah, that. I know. You know, you guys, please go out there and make sure that with flour specifically, that's not a value-added product. If we don't incentivize these small farmers and go away, it'll be like cigarettes. We'll all be smoking the same boof, and that cannot happen. We need these folks out there creating the new, new year over year to give us all the new terps, all the new tastes. We totally... There's, there's, there's high-end cigarettes. We totally need that, like he's saying, because it's like, this is so important. If you look at cannabinoids and how they're produced in the soil and the sun, these are the people who are the foundation of this industry who come in with these strains and these cannabinoids and terpenes that we don't see in all these other commercially, you know, produced strains that are in every other state. You can see even in Alaska, they've got, you know, apple fritter. It's like, we do too. So it's like, we need those strains. We need that real cannabinoids, those real, like from the soil, like, those real strains, because that's what's actually going to give us effect and not this, you know, juiced up, salt pumped boof. Thanks. Yeah, we got to ban boof all the way around. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Up next, he's hailing straight out of the longest of all beaches, even though Nicole West says it's not that long at all. <laughs> Our next correspondent is the CEO of deliciously vegan edible brand Fruit Slabs. And he's also the cannabis and intellectual property attorney. His beard game is the strongest I've seen in years. Coming to the stage next is Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us, my man? Thanks for having me today. Today my headline comes from Brian J. Varela of the Ventura County Star. It's Port Hunami moves toward cannabis lounges to strengthen local market. Port Hunami's city council unanimously approved an ordinance on Monday to amend their municipal code and permit cannabis use in as many as five lounge locations. The city officials believe lounges will help local dispensaries compete with dispensaries planned for Oxnard and Ventura, neighboring cities. The city currently has nine dispensaries and five more planned to open. Most shops in Port Hunami are located on Channel Islands Boulevard between Ventura Road and Wheelhouse Avenue, an area known as the Green Mile, where they believe they might see some of these lounges pop up. Tony Stewart, the city's community development director, said, quote, we are now... We are now looking to potentially allow these lounges so that we can stay ahead of the curve. The unanimous vote means the ordinance will have a second reading on March 21st, and if passed, the city would become the first city in Ventura County to approve cannabis lounges. The draft ordinance includes a handful of proposed restrictions, including the lounges cannot be within or adjacent to a cannabis dispensary, the consumption is limited to purchasing cannabis from the associated dispensary, so I guess you won't be able to bring your own, the consumption of alcohol and tobacco is also prohibited on the premises. Councilman Stephen Game suggested five lounges may not be enough and believes there is going to be healthy competition amongst dispensary owners for lounge licenses. Wheelhouse Dispensary and Tradecraft Farms have already expressed interest in the lounge model, and Jessica Wheels of Wheelhouse has already projected 
over a million dollars in revenue from first year of operations of a lounge with the city's proposed 5% tax, that would mean projected revenue for the city of over $50,000. And her model projects $2.2 million in revenue by year three, which would generate over $100,000 in revenue for Port Hunami. The article noted that nearby Ojai is also considering opening lounges, which were considered by the Ojai City Council in November and are now awaiting recommendations from the city's planning commission. That was all that was in the article, but it's exciting to see that there are more areas of California aggressively moving towards having cannabis lounges, as it will create a blossoming cannabis tourism market. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. You don't. You- it's pretty cool because Port Wainimi has got you know has been really pro cannabis with this crazy green mile of all these cannabis stores, and so it's great to see hopefully some of this value continually be added and draw people in from other areas that don't have lounges. Also, where it's located, um, this is a great place to start opening up lounges because it's so far away from, like, the city. I was just going to say, Port Waimimi is an amazing community, and um, I can't wait to check out some of these lounges once they, once they open up. I think it's a perfect location for this type of use. You had a couple clients out there, and I like it out there a lot. Real talk. Smoking weed on the water is my cool. favorite thing. Like, that's just legitimately my favorite thing. So I hope that we can get some waterfront uh, spots to hang out and have a nice consumption lounge in Port Wainimi. And it's way cheaper than in Los Angeles to, to live out there. What? W- would they serve seaweed there? Oh, God. All right. Well, let's make sure that we get to our next correspondent. Thank you so much for that headline, Brandon. Um, up next, we have Miss Medica Mahajan. Medica is a pot-smoking PhD, political economist, and the founder of Mahajan Consulting. What do you have for us today, Medica? Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, everybody. My story today comes from Virginia. This is an Associated Press piece covered in the Richmond News. And the headline reads, Bill to Allow Marijuana Resentencing Killed by GOP Lawmakers. Earlier this week, a Republican-led panel of Virginia House members blocked a bill that would have allowed people incarcerated or on probation for cannabis-related crimes to request a modified sentence. Twelve Republicans in the House Appropriations Committee opposed it on a straight party-line vote, and ten Democrats supported it. The bill was sponsored by Democratic Senator Scott Sorovell. The bill would have helped over 600 people applying for resentencing. Their sentences were handed out when the laws were different in the state, and Sorovell told the committee that many of these people wouldn't have received those sentences today. Possession is now legal, and the state is moving towards opening a retail market. This is happening almost a year after a democratically controlled legislature voted to legalize adult possession and to set up a framework for retail sales to begin in 2024. Republicans also voted to block a bill allowing limited retail sales to begin later this year. Discussion on the resentencing bill was pretty light, but the Republican vice chairman said that he would vote against it because total costs and impacts were unclear. After the vote, Sorovell surmised that Republicans defeated the bill now to hold on to that leverage next year when the larger bill on retail sales is debated again. He said, quote, the Republican caucus is kind of in a pretzel on this whole issue on marijuana. This bill has almost has absolutely nothing to do with retail sales. So it's really disappointing to me that 600 people's lives are in the balance. 600 people's freedom is in the balance. And we're going to use that as a bargaining chip. He intends to reintroduce the legislation next year. I think Rico has some guests that he's invited from um, from Virginia and have some inside information, so I'll pass the mic to him. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, I think we have some uh, friends out from uh, Lot Green Products out in um, in Virginia, 
going to come to the stage. Get Sarah on with us. All right. Can you all hear me? Yes, indeed. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Sarah Kaya Morton. I um, own a stash box company called Lot Green, um, but I've been a can- cannabis advocate in Virginia for several years. And, you know, this this SB 745 that was just read about um, is a disappointment, um, but th- that comes after several disappointments this year. Um, I hear you all speaking about all these different states and all this different legislation. Last year in Virginia, it was such an amazing year with progress with cannabis law. Um, you, you all have talked about it in the past where adult use was legalized. Um, 2024 is the year that uh, Virginia is going to open up its sales or the or the, or the earliest that Virginia can open up sales. Um we made adult use legal, growing up to four plants in the home, et cetera. But this year, it's been killing after killing after killing of bills. This is one that you just read about, but um, there was another huge bill, SB 391, that was shot down that would have given earlier access in 2024 to the market. So we're still very hopeful um, and want you to still keep following Virginia, but this has been quite an interesting year. Thank you so much, Sarah. We've got to keep moving because we are almost out of time. Um, I'm going to smoke some news myself. One of my favorite things about cannabis is growing it. Cannabis, in my opinion, is not addicting, but growing it is. It's a line in the sand as far as legislation goes. If you won't allow home growth, then fuck your legalization. If you play in the space and claim any benefit whatsoever, then how do you justify taking access away from the very patients that need home growth? My headline comes from Worcestershire Magazine, Worcester Magazine, and the title is Cannabis Confidential, A Lack of Clones. Massachusetts cannabis market started off with corporate cannabis. Massachusetts first voted to legalize medical marijuana in 2012 and then voted to legalize recreational pot in 2016. Some of the MSOs fought to ban home grow. Enter True Leave PR campaign to appease those of us with that line in the sand. Quote, True Leave supports home grow initiatives in Massachusetts and we're excited to offer our top tier genetics to those who would prefer to grow their own cannabis plants at home, said Kim Rivers, CEO of True Leave. We're delivering on our promise to meet cannabis consumers wherever they are in their level of experience, as well as our commitment to expanding the access to the plant as we continue to grow in the Massachusetts market, unquote. They released a limited amount of chocolate newberry and plan to release new strains later. No clones are currently listed on True Leave's on online menu. A representative from the company claimed that they still intend to sell clones in the future, but confirmed that none are currently available. According to the article, Green Zone Grow Shop is pretty busy, and they even offer a free four-week seminar to give new growers all the knowledge they need to get started. Joe Dalton teaches those seminars. Joe said it doesn't really make sense for his perspective, from his perspective for dispensaries to be selling clones, saying, quote, a dispensary could sell a clone to a customer and then never see them again unquote, once they started cultivating cannabis for themselves. I disagree. I think growing cannabis takes time, patience, and knowledge. Not everyone has those luxuries, but if everyone that consumes cannabis grows at least one plant, they will love cannabis even more and be more particular about who their cannabis farmer is. We are at time. Thank you so much. Uh, That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show. Anywhere you get your podcasts, 
or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Bye.